What do you do? What do you do? Imagine uh, you, you, there's somebody that you respect that, that you're, uh, you don't know them. They're a virtual stranger, but you, you've known them from afar maybe, and you respect them, and they, you're, you're in conversation, just kind of some small talk, kind of getting to know one another, and they say, tell me about yourself. What do you do? How do you answer that question? How do you answer? What are some of the categories that you quickly go to? Uh, what are some of those categories that you would use to, to identify what you do? Okay, around your job, around your career. Yeah, there's some other, other things that we'd quickly go to. Now, imagine a different scenario. Uh, imagine, well, actually, imagine the same scenario, but a different question. The same person, you want their respect, but you don't know them. You're talking. They say, tell me about yourself. Who are you? How do you answer that question? It's, that's an awkward question for a new relationship. Who are you? I mean, it's like, I don't quite know what to do with that question right out of the gates. I'm asking these two questions in this order because we often base our identity on our accomplishments. We'll base our identity on our accomplishments. We base who we are on what we do. We base our identity on our resume, so to speak. Now, I'm going, to be, I'm going to be talking quite a bit about identity this morning, or it's going to be a theme kind of underneath everything else that I'm saying. We're really aiming at identity this morning. And so it's really helpful then to, for us to have a working definition of what constitutes our identity, what makes up our identity. Here's a basic way to define it. It'll be up on the screen. Identity is who you are. It's the culmination of who you are, the way that you think about yourself, the way that you're viewed by the world outside, and it's also the characteristics that define you. So our identity is who we are, the way we think about ourselves, the way that we're viewed by the world, and also the characteristics that define us. So going back to these questions, kind of simultaneously, hand in hand, what do you do and who are you? Maybe you lean in with your titles and accomplishments. You lean in with a bit of your resume, things that you have done. Maybe you lean in with a job title. You're a CEO or you're an entrepreneur or you're an electrician or you're a stay-at-home mom or you're a school teacher or you're an administrator or like state wrestling champ or pickleball champ or something crazy like that. You lean in with your titles and accomplishments. Or maybe you lean in with kind of like family of origin stuff, birth order, I'm the firstborn, or I'm the baby of the family, or I'm an identical twin, or I'm a single mom, or a single dad, or I'm a widow, or I'm a grandparent, or a mom or a dad. We're born with this really strong compulsion within us to answer the question, who am I? So, who are you? Hi, Raiden. Hi, Raiden. That's a good place to start with a name. You've been named. Who are you? I'm not asking you to answer back with me. I'm just asking you to answer that question for yourselves. Who are you? How we answer that question, it orients us to the world around us. It's vast and it's complex, and we need orientation. We need to kind of know where we fit. And so we ask, who are you kind of questions in all kinds of ways, like we ask, who is for me? We ask, who can I trust? Or we'll ask uh, the, uh, the opposite of that. Who is against me? Who do I recoil from? Who opposes me? We'll ask, 
What am I good at? What kinds of things have I been celebrated for, accepted over? What am I not good at? What kinds of things have I been mocked for, ostracized for, teased about, marginalized? What, what am I not good at? Or we'll ask, what am I afraid of? Or what hurts me? Or who hurts me? Or what do I want? We don't just ask questions like these in words only, but we also ask questions like these in our guts, like kind of a primal, subconscious feeling out of situations. And we don't just ask them occasionally, but we're asking and trying to orient ourselves with questions like this constantly. We're calibrating, we're adjusting according to what it is that we're after, what it is that we're seeking in life, but also according to who is around us. And so our sense of identity, it's actually largely shaped by our community. It's largely shaped by those around us. Things said and things not said. Things done and things not done. People around you have helped shape who you are in profound ways, many of which you and I can't even see or haven't yet acknowledged. So over the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about community. We're going to be talking about how who God is shapes how we live together under his rule. We're in a series called basics. And anytime there's a disruption, anytime there is a disruption, whether it's in the play that you're running in a sport or whether it's in the culture that we're living in, it's paramount that we run back to fundamentals. Whenever you get punched in the face, you need to run to a plan. I don't know where that came from. It just came. We need to... We need to, we, we need to, no, we're not going to punch him back, actually. We need to uh, ask your mommy what Jesus says about that. Go find it, mommy. Um, when, we, when, we, when we live in disruption, we need to run back to the fundamentals. So that's what basics is all about. Basics is designed to help us see what it is as a church we're primarily centering around. The first of which is the gospel, Jesus Christ. The second of which is community. And the third of which is mission. So Jesus, community, and mission. And over the next three weeks, we'll be talking about how we fit in community and how our identity in community, how we relate with one another, is shaped by the Father in unique ways. It's shaped by the Son, Jesus Christ, in unique ways, and it's shaped by the Holy Spirit in unique ways. We're all created in the image of God, and we have these distinct aspects of His personality, Father, Son, and Spirit, imparted to us, and that we live under, we live from. So over the last five weeks, just by way of orientation and basics, we have been looking at these statements, these three statements, past tense, present tense, and future tense, of the gospel's power, what it brings to us, what have we received in Jesus Christ. And the, the very first statement, Steve was here a couple of weeks ago, and, and, uh, and he kind of quizzed us on it, and the response was not great. So I'm hoping that over time there's a bit of retention or I'm just going to have to like really step up my game as a teacher in a Sunday context. But the past tense benefit that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, brings us is that we have been saved from what? From the penalty of 
of sin. We have been saved from the penalty for our sin through the life and the death of Jesus Christ. He has lived perfectly in our place. He has died as our substitute. He has extended his righteousness to us and taken our sin upon himself. And so through his life and death, we are shielded, propitiated is the theological word for that, from the wrath of the Father against humanity's rebellion against him. Not only that, but we are being saved, present tense, from what? From the power of sin, through Jesus' resurrection and through his ascension. So he has beat death, he has risen from the dead, and not only that, but he has ascended and been glorified and is at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over all things, overseeing our life and appropriating his presence and his power to us. So we call on him in faith. And as we call on Jesus Christ in faith, he helps us get untangled from the sin which so easily tangles us up. He helps to liberate us in our here and now. There is power for us available that frees us. Sin is losing its grip on us. Past. We have been saved from the penalty for our sin through Jesus Christ. We are being saved from the power of sin through Jesus Christ. And the future tense benefit of the gospel is we will be saved from the presence of what? Sin through Jesus' promised return. So Jesus has promised that he is going to come and he is going to what? Make all things new. There is a day coming when sin will be vanquished from our existence entirely. It breaks our brains a little bit to try to imagine our lives without our sin and the sin of other people around us. And yet, the promise of God clearly stated throughout the scriptures is that he will vanquish sin in entirety and we wait For our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who will free us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So these are the truths that we've been rehearsing. And as we've been rehearsing them, this good news of Jesus, it reshapes how we relate to God by showing us first how he relates to us. So we haven't done anything. This is all his promise, all his benefit, all of his power just aimed at our messy lives. And we recognize that he's unchanging, he's holy, he's merciful, he's just, he's good, he's compassionate and generous. And so basics, as we're realizing these things, as they're dawning on us, it's got us feeling, sensing, and enjoying the goodness of God in the gospel. And so we just sit in it, and we come back to it, and we rehearse it when there is disruption and when there's not. The truth of who God is, it recalibrates us. The truth of who God is recalibrates us. I used to work in a mint. It's called uh, sunshine minting. We minted uh, one-ounce silver coins for the, uh, the treasury. They're actually located here locally, and I worked in a bunch of different phases of this mint from the, the smelting or the melting of the silver through like extrusion, and these big bars would get created that then get passed through these machines that stamp out these one-ounce coin blanks, and then those coin blanks have an image pressed into them, and there was all kinds of process to it. It was a really, really cool environment. I didn't love it at the time, but I appreciate it now. And one of the, uh, one of the, the rooms or the, the, the phases that I worked in was the this, um, it, w- it was this like we would pick these coin blanks up off of a compu- uh, off of a 
conveyor belt line. And uh, these blanks would just get stamped out, and they'd just kind of rush at us, and there'd be multiple people on both sides of it, and we would just pick these coins off, and then we would set these coins on a digital scale, and these coins had to be within a certain tolerance of one ounce, otherwise they were rejected, sent back, and, sent back, and they were melted and start the process all over again. Uh, but as we did this, as we put the coins on the scales and took the, scoin, the coins off of the scales, these scales would get jostled and bumped, and slowly the scales would drift, and their calibration would be off, their accuracy would be off. And so what would we have to do? We would have to regularly zero out these digital scales and recalibrate them back to zero, because if we didn't do that, our work would be futile. We'd be turning in a product that was unacceptable. The Christian life is similar in that the gospel calibrates us to the truth of who God is, what he's done, who we are, and how we live under his rule. And we, you guys know this in our experience, we get bumped and we get knocked around constantly and our calibration goes off and we drift. And so it's very important for the people of God to recalibrate consistently and constantly around who God is, what he's done for us in Christ, who we are now because of Jesus Christ, and then out of that comes how we are to live. And so basics, this topical series is meant to calibrate us to our core identity as a church. Now, God is the maker and he is our life source, and we have spurned humanity on the whole. We have spurned him, and we have abandoned him. And yet, he comes to us on a rescue mission to reshape our identity. His glory will be known among the nations through the reshaping of our identity. And our identity, where we source our identity, it needs to be reshaped because it has been marred by our sin and by the sin of other people. And so each person in this room, the person in your seat, you have a lifetime of obtaining your identity from sources outside of the Father and outside of the Holy Spirit and outside of the Son. We all do. So there are parts and pieces of our lives that have been, our identity has been shaped by who God is, but there is a large portion of our lives that have been shaped by something outside of him. Often one of the most, the earliest and most enduring shapers of our identity, it comes through our families. It comes through those who parented us. I say those who parented us because not all of us were raised by biological parents. Some of us were raised by grandparents. Some of us were adopted. Some of us were raised by friends and family. We all have a diverse story. But we learned how to first relate to the world around us through those who raised us. We learned things from those who raised us. And so for some of us, we have this rich heritage of investment and encouragement. You were taught to chase down your dreams and then you were supported as you did just that. Your parents were present to you. Your parents were for you. They were intentional to you. They nurtured your soul. They protected you when there was adversity. They stood for you. Some of us, that's our heritage. For some of us, for others of us, we have wishes of how it would have been. We're filled with grief. We're filled with longing. We're filled with pain. The reality is we feel really let down by those who raised us. Maybe they were an opposing presence. They were cruel, abusive, harsh. 
unkind. They looked over you. They were distant from you, aloof. Kind of a storyline of your early life was you felt unwanted, you felt unloved, you felt unseen by your parents. Maybe they meant well, they just were cowardly, selfish. Or maybe in some of our homes, I know this is the story for a lot of us, our parents were shaming and too performance-oriented. And so no matter how much we gave up of ourselves, we just couldn't quite give enough. And that's led us to this struggling and striving for mom and dad's affection well into adulthood. For some of us, you're still in the home. You're still trying to make sense of mom and dad. You're still trying to make sense of how you're being raised. You're still trying to make sense of who you are. You're still trying to make sense of life and how you fit. And while our parents might have done well overall, while they might have tried their best, completely failed us, or the jury is still out and deliberating, we have life-changing news just, um, just ringing at the edges of our ears and our hearts. And it's this, that through Christ, we have become children of our Father by the will of our Father. This means that your Father, you have a new Father, you have a new parent who is perfect and who wants you. It's by His will that you are being parented by Him. John's, uh, Jesus' disciple, a man named John, in John's Gospel, in John 1, 9 through 13, he says this. He's speaking poetically about uh, the reality of Jesus Christ, and he refers to Jesus as the true light. He says, the true light, which gives light to everyone. Jesus is the light of men, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Jesus, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, that is the Jewish people, and his own people didn't receive him. In fact, they rejected him. They crucified him. They mocked him. But to all, so there was a group of people who did receive him, but to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, what this means to believe in his name is to believe in his identity as the one who takes away the sins of the world. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. All power and authority belong to him. For those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And these children were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, the will of your mom and dad, the will of those who gave birth to you, but of God. To be born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, it's speaking of your spiritual birth. You came into this world, I came into this world as a natural person. We came in, though, dead in sin. But you came into the family of God spiritually, and you came into the family of God spiritually by God's will. So what happened in that moment, whether you admit it or know it yet or can see it yet or not, is this. The Father revealed the magnificence of His Son to you. He opened your eyes to see the magnificence of Jesus Christ, and you could not help but take hold of Him. It was what you most needed. He was what you most wanted in that moment. And so you reached out and you took hold of him. This is what happened at your conversion. This is what happened in the moment of your justification when you became a Christian. What happened was your father opened your eyes to see the beauty of the gift of his son for you. The father has sought you out. The father is pursuing true worshipers. And as we recognize this, it brings comfort to our heart, but it also brings forward two truths that are fairly hard to believe. 
They're hard to live from. That's what I mean by believe. They're hard to live from. Christians, number one, have God as our new parent. He is our legitimate father. His fatherhood supersedes that of those who raised us and our allegiances to him. Number two, Christians have a new community. We have new siblings and a new family under a new father. Christians have God as our father. This is my first point. I've only got two this morning. That was just all introduction. God as our father is our first point, and Christians have new siblings is my second point, and a new family. No matter what your family of origin did or didn't do, you have a new parent, and this new parent, the father, is perfect, and he is perfectly for you. He is bending the weight and the aim of all of his resources toward your renewal. He wants you. He's seeking you. He's sought you. He's teaching you and I to live and to relate in, in our world from the security of knowing who he is and, know, and from the security of knowing the lengths that he has gone to to pursue us and renew us. J.I. Packer, he's a great theologian. He recently passed away. He was like 96 years old, I believe. A couple of weekends ago, I think he went to be with the Lord. He sees him uh, face to face at this point. He's more alive today than he ever was in this life. He was asked, what is a Christian? And his answer to this question, what is a Christian, was this. He said, the question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer that I know is that a Christian is one who has God as a father. The richest answer that J.I. Packer knew, a phenomenal theologian to answer what is a Christian, it's one who has God as a father, who lives from that reality. Now, not all people have God as their father. Not all of humanity are children of God because only those who receive his son are and are justified by Christ's work are children of God. This is a hard truth, but it's taught in the scriptures. Those who reject Jesus are actually referred to as children of wrath. The Apostle Paul, when writing to the Ephesian church, he would say, before coming to Christ, we were living as we were living, quote, in the passions of our flesh. We were carrying out the desires of the body and of our minds, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And then he transitions to one of the most beautiful texts in all of the New Testament, Ephesians 2.4, and he says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, nothing to offer him, made us alive together with Christ. This active verb made and the fact that he made us alive together with Christ expresses that it's God who made us alive. It's God who made us alive. It's not you or I who made you alive, who sprung yourself up from death to life. And he was motivated by something too. And his motivation wasn't our goodness, it wasn't our resume, it wasn't your performance. His motivation, do you see it in the text? His motivation was the great love with which he loved us. It originated in him. Because he is good, he set his affection on you. The Father has pursued you and I, and his purpose is to renew and recalibrate us. And this will lead to the renown of his glory in all of the world. Listen to how the Apostle Paul finishes out that text in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, by grace, you've been saved. It's undeserved. 
It's unmerited. You haven't performed for it. No circus tricks here. No tickets. By grace, you have been saved. And God raised us up with him, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That reality is what is true for you and of you. Why? Purpose clause. So that in the coming ages, the Father, God himself, might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. (laughs) Think about this for a minute. What he aims to do for you and with you for all of humanity is to show you and shower upon you the unmeasurable riches of all of the resources of his power and authority and goodness forever and ever and ever and ever. We are not going to be fat little angel babies on clouds forever. That's not our reality. Our reality is that no eye has seen, no ear has heard the good things, the wonders that God has prepared for those who love him. We can think up Star Trek. We can think up Star Wars. We can think up Lord of the Rings. They're fantastic. The human mind is amazing in its imagination. But God's reality of what he is bringing us into for all of eternity far outweighs that, so much so that the human brain breaks. It can't even get into the territory of how good he is. Selah. That kind of truth will get a man or a woman up out of bed in the morning. At the root of your father's purpose for your life is that you relate to him as your father and begin to just set your mind on what he has prepared for you. Christian is no longer a spiritual orphan. A Christian is one who has God as their father, her father, his father. Now, I'm going to make a hard turn here in Romans 8. And I'm just going to jump into Romans 8. It's on page 888 in the Black Bibles in the room. It's not going to be up on the screen. I want you to, I want you to open up the scriptures around you, app on your phone, whatever you have at your disposal, to Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. We don't do this often. I don't even like to do this, but I'm going to do it this morning. What uh, we're doing is dropping in kind of mid-thought, mid-sentence, just splashing down right in the, in the middle of one of the greatest chapters in all of the New Testament, Romans chapter 8. The Apostle Paul here is speaking of adoption. He's speaking of our inheritance. He's speaking of how we are heirs um, with Christ for all of the good that God has aimed at us. Romans eight fourteen uh, through, I believe, 17. Mid-sentence, he says this, For all who are led by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, are sons of God. <clears throat> He's using Roman law language here. Uh, the, the, the son in a Roman family had inheritance rights. The sons did. But what Paul is saying here is scandalous in his day. This, this includes men and women. He's saying, for all who are led by the Spirit of God have inheritance rights as sons, men and women. They're all sons of God. It's not a gendered term in, the, in that sense. It's not going to make all women men. He's saying that all women and men have inheritance rights, just like sons do. 
And then he goes on to say in verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, the kind of fear of being an orphan, the kind of fear of everything being up to you. You have to secure everything for yourself. We didn't receive that kind of spirit of slavery to fall back into the fear of being alone, but rather you have received past tense, complete. You have received the spirit, the Holy Spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So as the Spirit of God comes into our life, He so draws us to the Father that we can begin to cling to Him and come to Him and call out to Him with this familial term, Abba, Father. It's a word that Jesus used. We don't have an adequate translation for this word Abba in the English language, but probably the closest we can get to it is Dad. It's a term that you just don't say to anybody, and when you say it to somebody who isn't your dad, it makes you feel uncomfortable in them too. It's a term like that. It's a term that's appropriated for special individuals and special relationships. The spirit of adoption as sons is given to us by the spirit by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And now, look at this, verse 16. The spirit of God himself bears witness with our spirit, so he confirms for us internally that we are children. We are children of God. We are accepted, wanted, pursued, included. And if we're children, then there's more benefits coming down the line. We're also heirs. We're heirs of God. All of his resources available to us. And we're fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. Paul is getting to some sense here of we, we, we need to want him, not just the things that he offers, provided that we're willing to just go where he goes in whatever way he goes there. We suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. So Paul is speaking in Romans 8 of adoption. He's saying that we are adopted children of God. And what adoption means in human terms or in spiritual terms is that an adopted person is a son or a daughter, which means that they are claimed, which means that they are included, which means that they are sought after, which means that they are wanted. An adopted child is a wanted child. A powerful aspect of adoption is its intentionality. Think about this. Adopted children do nothing. Adopted children seek no one. Adopted children jump through no hoops. Adopted children go nowhere. Their parents come for them. They had no idea these parents existed. And the parents break through the door and come for them. And adoptions are not accidental they're highly intentional, and they change mid-flight the identity of those who are adopted. Boom, just like that, from an orphan to a child with a new name. What's often seen, especially in human adoption, though, is that although the child's identity is in the family, it's fully secure, their identity is fully secure, their way of life actually takes time to adjust. Their actual way of living, it takes time to adjust. So even though they have a new name, even though they have a new blessing upon them, a new room, new parents, and an inheritance that is aimed at them, orphans who have recently been adopted, and it continues sometimes for quite some time, they often continue living as though they're still on their own. Their way of life takes a while to adjust and change, and so they'll hide, and so they'll fight, and so they'll store and hide food and reject touch, even though they're a fully wanted and claimed son or daughter. 
here's what this means the reality of our human ex the reality of our human experience means that transformation takes time our transformation our change it just takes time it's painfully slow is it not in your experience your transfer transformation like steve said a few weeks ago it's like one click one click one click but small clicks over long periods of time yield great change we just don't often see it in the moment our spiritual adoption it changes now turning here to spiritual adoption it changes our reality mid-flight so god seeks us and he blesses us and he places us in his kingdom in his family he secures us forever and yet we too as christians and non-christians live under his roof under his rule and care as though we're still spiritual orphans that's our reality for many of us we live as though we're alone we don't know the resources that we have at our disposal we don't take hold of them there's all kinds of different reasons that we live like orphans and yet think about this he's patient with us he's patient with us he continues to seek us when we hide he comforts us when we believe that we have to perform in order to be accepted and we relate to to the father as though our relationship is transactional if I do, then he will, but he relates to us according to his great love for us. He does things for us that we do not deserve and we have not earned, and they are great. When Jesus came up out of the water at his baptism, uh, the Father, if you know this story, spoke over him. So the sky parts, the Spirit of God descends and kind of rests on Jesus. Luke tells us in the form of a dove, it was all, the only language he had. There's there something there that he couldn't describe that was occurring in Jesus' waters of baptism. Jesus came up out of the water, and this voice from heaven spoke. What did he, what did he say? What did the Father say? You are my beloved Son, whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. The Father spoke this before Jesus had done anything in public ministry, before Jesus had readily, in any way that we know, advanced the kingdom of the Father. The blessing was upon Jesus before he ever did anything. Now, there's a difference between us and Jesus. The difference between us and Jesus is that he's the natural born, he's the natural begotten son of the Father. He's in that first place, that place of preeminence and supremacy. And whereas we're adopted into the family through Jesus' sacrifice, so we have been brought into the family. Yet, as adopted children of God, we enjoy the same relationship Jesus has to his Father. Why? Because his Father is our Father. He would say after his resurrection to his disciples, he was speaking to Mary, but he told Mary to go on and tell the rest of the gang. He said, I am going to my Father and your Father. I'm going to my God and your God. So, we too are the apple of the Father's eye. We're the pleasure of his love. We are the delight of his focus. If we didn't get all we wanted or needed in our human fathers, we are invited even more deeply into the pleasure that our Father in heaven takes in his Son and in us. We're invited into that kind of a relationship. The truth is, we really don't relate to the Father like this, do we? Not in a natural way. It takes us time to adjust out of being orphans, coming into the family of God. 
And so we have, the reality is, is that we have been included in the family. And if we'll turn, tune and turn our ears and our hearts to God's word, to his word to us, we will also hear the Father say in many ways, you are my child whom I love, in you I am well pleased. And so in the gospel, we have the Father that we have always wanted and the Father that we have always needed. And so we can cry that familial address, Abba, Father. For those of us who have been let down, who are wishing that our parents were different, instead of an opposing presence, your father, he's for you. He's bending the weight of his resources for your good and your renewal, for his glory. Your father is compassionate. Your father is careful with your soul. He's careful with your soul. Instead of harsh and cold and distant and aloof, your father is present to you. He's a pursuer. He's patient with your failures. At great cost to himself, the father gives up his own son so that you and I would know that we are truly to the end, to the bottom, known and wanted, loved. And he is no coward. And he is the definition of unselfish. He's active for your good. The Father is not passive. The Father is not inactive on your behalf. He looks to the performance of his Son for your justification and for your full inclusion. And he looks to you saying, You are my child, whom I love is my own, and with you I am well pleased. And so, in the moments when we know that we are less than well pleasing, what does his spirit do for us as more and more proof of his goodness? The spirit of God draws us back to him, sometimes in moments, sometimes over months. But nonetheless, the spirit of God draws us back to the father in repentance. He shows us the folly of our ways. He opens our eyes to it. He comforts us with his presence and holiness while at the same time we see our sin and we recognize that the cross of Jesus Christ bridges that gap between our sinfulness and God's holiness. Our Father can't help but be praised in us and through us as we live increasingly more and more out of this reality. So we have a Father and he's placed us in a family and in the family that we've always needed and wanted. And this leads me to a second truth here. This will be brief, but Christians are siblings in God's family. So Christians have a, have a new father. We have God as our father, and also we are siblings in God's family. I've said this often. I hope that this makes sense to you. The church is not a building that we go to or an event that we attend. The church is the family to which we belong. You don't go to family. I'm going to family now. Nobody says that. Why? Because you are family. It's an identity. We are the family of God. It shapes our new identity. We are the church. We don't go to church. Perhaps you have heard that. This text in Romans 8, even though I'm just, just like glancing off of it this morning, it doesn't end with us being only children. It doesn't end with us all compartmentalized all over the world. But rather, this text, it rings with the riches of a large family made up of those from every nation, from all tribes, from all peoples, and from all languages. Our Father has so loved us that he set us in his diverse family where we are called to apprentice ourselves to him and to learn from his ways. We live out of what he has done 
in us. What he has done to you, he does through you. God's family, the, 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 the church, is the environment where we learn to love all kinds of people in all kinds of ways. So think about it like this. What better environment to practice the one another's than in a family full of people you wouldn't choose? Think about that for a moment. It's like just the diversity of people in this room. Like we didn't know one another. We couldn't choose one another. Some of us probably wouldn't choose one another. Maybe in your own families on this morning. I don't know. Like the, the, the Father is calling us to live differently toward people who are like us and not like us. We share the same Father, and so we've got to learn to live and relate to one another as brothers and sisters. We're fellow heirs, and we're fellow family. This phrase, one another, it's used often, frequently in the New Testament, and it captures the many different ways that we're called to relate to one another as a loving family. So consider for just a second, consider instead of using our energy The energy that we have, the vitality vitality that we have to gain and secure our identity on our own apart from the Father. Imagine how he invites us to redirect our energy from we're now secure, we recognize that we're in his family, so we don't have to cling and and grasp for, for, for identity from other sources. But imagine how, because that identity is now redirected, We can love and we can serve those around us as a witness to his goodness. Cancel culture and gospel culture are irreconcilable. We're hearing a lot about this phrase, cancel culture in our society. It is a cancer. Cancel culture, it's all about withdrawing our support and shaming those who have made public mistakes or done said things that an online mob or people around us object to. Cancel culture is all about putting aside the voices that have made mistakes and shaming them. But gospel culture is altogether different. It has a totally different vibe to it. It makes much of Jesus Christ. Gospel culture makes much of Jesus Christ by lending relational support. Hear this. Gospel culture, it invites us to lend relational support to failures to losers, to enemies, to political ideologues who are different than us, sinners, the unremarkable, and the unforgivable. Gospel culture invites us, we don't have to agree, but invites us to be for those people. They're people created in the image of God, and perhaps God is calling them to himself through you, through the Spirit at work in you and in them. Consider the one another. So I'll just go through them briefly, and then we'll be done. Be devoted to one another. This will probably be up on the screen. Be devoted. This is, there's like 59 one another's um, in the New Testament at least. There's, there's, there's more than that, depending on how you kind of break them up. Be devoted to one another. Paul says this in Romans 12.10. So consider Jesus' level of devotion to you at the cross. Just how devoted is Jesus Christ to your, for your good at the cross? It shows us a very stark picture of the level and degree of his devotion. And out of that, as that dawns on us, it helps us to realize 
how we are to live to those within the family of God and also those outside of the family of God. Let us not judge one another. Consider the judgment that you deserved and how it fell on Christ. Your condemnation for your rebellion was put on Jesus Christ. Let us not judge one another. Accept one another. Consider how scandalous it is that a holy God welcomes sinners of every stripe, even yours. The stripes that you have, your sins. He has accepted you. He calls us to accept those in the household of faith. Instruct one another. How badly do we need to be corrected and instructed? Consider the first word of Jesus' public ministry. Repent. He's instructing us. He's leading us to transformation. He's leading us to change. Care for one another. 1 Corinthians 12, 25. God has not chosen sides among his people, but rather he cares for all of his people. He's reshaping, renewing, correcting all, instructing all of his people, and thereby he unites us. We are united under his fatherhood in one family. Differences, warts, hang-ups, and all. Serve one another in love. Jesus had ultimate freedom, yet he gave up his freedom in order to come and serve us in love. Consider how his service to you frees you to serve one another in love, even though they might harm you. He will give you strength. The truth of who God is, the truth of the fatherhood of God, it recalibrates us. Your identity is fleeting. It's unstable. It's vulnerable if, the, if we are looking to establish it outside of who he is. But if your identity is rooted in what the Father says is true of you, that identity because it's placed in someone and something as secure as the Father, it will endure the hardship, it will endure the questioning, it will endure the doubts, it will endure the complacency, it will endure the trials, it will endure the conflict that emerge constantly in this life of ours. You are not an orphan, Christian. You are not alone, Christian. The Father is asking you to abide in him and to recalibrate your identity as his beloved child who his love is upon and in whom he is pleased. We can cheer up. We have God as our Father. Our identity is secure. So that's our work. Our work is to rehearse this truth this week. I've been grumpy all weekend, personally. I've been uh, trying, to, uh, trying to write this message, rehearsing these truths. I've had a really hard time appropriating these truths to my present here and now. But as I set my mind on this objective truth, it's keeping me true and it's um, uh, prohibiting me from sinning in some profound ways probably. But also, it's redirecting me where the truth of who the Father is is coming home to me, and it begins to lighten my load, and I can begin to live in a new way. I need this truth as much as anyone on the planet. It's for me. It's for you. Father, we love you. We come to you. We ask that you would help us to understand. We help, ask that you would help us to um, remember. Holy Spirit, would you apply um, the truth that we are not orphans. Would you help us to see the ways in which we, uh, our lifestyle under your rule mimics that of how an orphan might live in an adoptive home, still clinging to an old way of life? Or would you lead us toward renewal? Would you lead us toward holiness? 
Would you lead us toward gratitude and thankfulness for all that we have received through the person and work of Jesus Christ? Amen.